Well, it was back in April 29th, 2011, that Kate Middleton, a total commoner, married a prince, Prince William, Duke of Cambridge, second in line to the British throne. And in that moment, her life changed forever. In British society, at least, she went from being a commoner to a royal. She became Catherine, Duchess of Cambridge, and immediately thereafter, very possibly in her lifetime, she could become the, the, the uh, Queen Consort of England. But just pause for a moment and think about that transformation, just in the moment, in the moment of her marriage, simply because of her union to the prince, she became royalty, and thereafter inherited all the rights and privileges and, and benefits that, that come with it. So, for example, from that moment on, she would never again have to worry about money. The royal family is a wealthy estate. They're also supported by an allowance by the government. So she would never have to buy groceries or pay rent, worry about making the bills ever again. The same goes for housing. From Buckingham Palace to Kensington Palace, the royals have uh, plenty of real estate in prime locations, basically multi-million dollar mansions that they have now for free is theirs. These residences also come with a full staff, which prides itself on dedicated service. So she inherited a small army of servants, from butlers to nannies to cooks to bodyguards, all ready to do her bidding anytime. And speaking of bodyguards, the royals also enjoy constant security, from the Queen's Guard to police protection. They're surrounded by men who are willing to die for them at any time. In marrying a royal, Kate also gained access to the royal collection, fine art, porcelain, furniture, jewels. As a commoner, she would, she would never be allowed anywhere near these, these precious possessions of the royal family. But now she can wear them, put them on. They're, they're pretty much hers. She also inherited honor. When she got married, nothing really changed in her as a person, but because of her new status, because of that union she became a princess. She became a royal highness. Now people will bow before her and treat her like the most important person in the room simply because of her new status. And I guess this is probably why so many people in Britain at least dream of this transformation, this rags to riches story. They're obsessed with the royals. They want to be one. They just want to inherit all these amazing privileges and benefits that come with royalty. But do you realize that as a Christian, you're living this dream, but only more so? Before God, we weren't just commoners. Far worse, we were rebels. We were enemies. But when we came to faith in Christ, when we were united to Jesus, everything changed. We went from being enemies to friends, from rebels to children, children of God adopted into his royal family, and thereby we inherit many privileges and benefits that come with our new family. We gain a spiritual palace, so to speak, our, our father's house in which there are many rooms and one day in his court is better than a thousand elsewhere, the song goes. We, we gain servants. Hebrews 1.14 teaches that God actually dispatches angels as ministering servants to render service to those of the faith. Pretty amazing to think about. And then let's talk finances. In Christ, we're rich. I'm not talking about money or gold. We're talking about treasure in heaven. We're spiritually blessed with, with all things in Christ. And really, the ultimate treasure is Christ himself. He is the treasure we gain above all. 
So these are some of the benefits we receive in Christ just by virtue of our union with him. Not to mention the gifts of forgiveness of sins and, and perfect righteousness. I mean, we're overwhelmingly blessed in Christ. Now, that being said, though, I, I think Christians tend to think of these blessings, though, as being all future. These are things we will receive. These are things we will inherit in the future. You know, we're not in heaven now. We're not glorified now. We're not face-to-face with Christ now. And all that stuff comes later. The real blessings, they all come later. But that's only partly true. Yeah, it's true. Our, our ultimate blessing comes later, glorification, face-to-face with Christ. The, the ultimate prize doesn't come until you cross the finish line. That, that's true. There are, however, many real blessings and benefits that come to us right now in Christ. They're specifically designed and given to us to help us run the race and make it to that finish line that we would truly inherit eternal life. Being united to Christ by faith doesn't just set us up for the future. It also perfectly and fully equips us for the present. And we're going to learn about some of these present benefits of being in Christ this morning. So you can turn your Bibles now once again to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. We've been studying these opening verses to Philippians for quite some time. as They're just packed with vital teaching. And from Paul's example, we learn so much about the nature of true salvation. And since it's, it's such a valuable passage on true salvation, we've been taking it pretty slow. And I mean really slow, like one or two verses at a time. And, and even again today, just two verses, verses 10 and 11. The only problem, though, is when you go that slow, you, you can easily lose sight of the big picture. Like, what, what is this about? And so before we get going here, just a quick refresher on the big picture of Philippians chapter 3. Remember, back in verse 1, Philippians 3 begins with this call to rejoice. He's telling the Philippian church to rejoice in the Lord. They needed to be reminded to take joy in the Lord always. Why is that? Well, for one, that's the only place true joy is found. But in addition, such joy plays an essential role in helping them stand firm in their faith despite all the attacks from their opponents coming from the outside. And that is what the church was facing. Part of their opposition was coming from just opponents outside and actually some inside the church, disguised as true teachers, yet they were, Paul says, false teachers, subscribing to a false gospel of works salvation. We found at least back then, these teachers were known as the Judaizers, seeking to re-enslave these, these new Christians back under the burden of the law. And although the Judaizers are gone now, today we have our own share of false teachers and legalists who still infiltrate the church, seeking to enslave God's people to works righteousness. And so we found that Paul says, beware of these people. Three times, in fact, in verse 2, beware these evil workers, he calls them. And since these people have made their way into the church, though, Paul goes on to to paint a contrast between them and us, the true believer and the false believer, that you might identify them. And in painting this contrast, one of the clearest differences between the true and the false is confidence. Namely, they place their confidence 
in themselves. They're trusting in themselves to deliver them before God. That they're good enough. They're righteous enough. They're obedient enough. But we, we place our confidence not in ourselves, but in Christ. In Christ alone. Knowing we can never be good enough, but our only hope is to be justified, not by works, just by faith in Him. And receive the inheritance just by faith through God's grace. This is the gospel of Jesus. And to highlight how futile their false gospel is, a gospel of works, Paul, next, he picks on himself. That's because back in the day, Paul was the poster boy of this works righteousness, this self-righteousness. He was this super devout Jew. and He was clinging to all these deeds and accomplishments, like little badges of honor, all that he had stored up throughout his life, this, this credit of righteousness. And he was truly trusting in all of these accomplishments to save him. This is, you know, verses 4 through 6 that we covered. Paul really believed back before his salvation that when he stood before God and God asked for his ticket into heaven, Paul would just, you know, pull out these badges of honor, all that he had accomplished, and, and give them to God. And God would say, oh, sure, this, this way, right in as if God would regard and see how righteous he was because of all that he had done. But then Paul came to see the light of Christ. And that light revealed how all, all the self-righteousness he was holding on to was, was dirty. It was defiled. It was worthless. Unacceptable to God. He came to see, like Isaiah, that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before him. Just think about that. All of our so-called righteous deeds to God, they're as good as, as a filthy rag. That's because we're fallen sinners. We're in rebellion. We're, we're living in, in the mire of rebellion against God. Our hands are dirty and defiled. So anything we, we work with our hands itself becomes dirty and defiled and unacceptable to God. There's no merit to be gained. Imagine it just rained. You live next to like maybe a dirt field. And so your kids go over and they just play in the mud. Kind of fun for them, but at the same time, they become absolutely filthy. They're like every square inch of them is dripping with mud. Now, what would it take for you to let them back in the house and pretend you just have brand new white carpets? Well, they're going to have to be perfectly clean. You try throwing them in a towel, but the towel immediately gets itself caked in mud and it's of no use whatsoever you throw them new clothes but it doesn't help they're still just dripping with mud and everything you give to them just gets defiled instantly because they're still in the mud pit so what must happen well first they have to leave the mud pit if they don't want to so you're gonna have to go get them which means you yourself might get a little muddy then you're gonna have to do two things clean them off and put on new clothes Perfectly clean them off and then give them brand new clothes. And imagine you're dealing with two-year-olds, so they can't do this themselves. They're not capable of doing this all themselves, and they don't want to leave. So you're going to have to go get them. And in a way, this, this picture salvation, which is what Paul came to realize in his conversion. That here he was, he was trying to be accepted into his father's house by, by earning his way in through religious deeds and, and accomplishments but, but he was covered in, in mud. And everything he did was just dirty. It was defiled. It didn't count. Even, even his so-called religious accomplishments were to God just filthy. 
unworthy to enter into his presence. God didn't accept them. He wanted nothing to do with them. Paul was completely defiled and, and stuck in sin, unable to free himself from the mud pit of sin, so to speak. But then Paul also realized what God did for him to rescue him, how he sent his son, Christ, to earth to, to live in, in the mud of this world, so to speak, where he died on the cross and rose from the dead to, to save us, to rescue us from the pit. And it's through Christ's death that God was doing what for us? Through this atoning death, what was God doing? He was taking us out of the mud pit, cleaning us off by the forgiveness, forgiveness of our sins, and then putting new clothes on us through Christ's righteousness, giving us the robe of Christ's righteousness. He, he cleaned us. In short, he's cleaning us off perfectly so that now we can enter the house. Now we can be accepted by God. Not because of anything we've done. We were, we were the problem but all by what he did in his grace. And this gift of redemption comes by God's grace that we'll never be justified on our own. You're never going to make it into that house on your own. You're defiled. That's the whole point. That our only hope is this gift, the gift of forgiveness and righteousness in Christ, which comes by faith. So this helps explain verses 7 through 9, which we spent three weeks on. Look at verse 7 again. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Like I said, we really slowed down here and spent three weeks learning from Paul. I mean, this is a critical passage where he explores the true nature of salvation. We learned you must reject the flesh, gain Christ, receive his righteousness to be saved. That is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, which is the power of God for salvation, the, the righteousness we need to, to enter the house, it's not found in us. We can never produce it. It can only come as a gift through Christ by faith, entirely alone. Nothing else, no works, no deeds. Well, there's still more to say, though. Paul is not quite done. And we come today to verses 10 through 11, the next pair of verses. And like I said, when you go slow, it can be challenging because you miss the context, but hopefully you're, you're becoming more aware and more familiar, reminded of, of the context here. But it's in these next two verses, though, that Paul moves on from the basis of salvation to the benefits of salvation. From the basis to the benefits of salvation. How is salvation expressed? Back in verse 8, he calls it gaining Christ. Verse 9, being found in Christ. These are just synonyms for salvation. We gain Christ by faith. We're found in Christ by faith. And this salvation comes with some immediate saving benefits, like the gift of righteousness. That's verse 9. We, we covered that. But there's more. There, there are more benefits of being found in Christ. 
as we're brought into union with Christ by faith, as we're married to him, we receive some other benefits, some present benefits that are meant, they're designed to enable us to live now with Christ, in Christ, for Christ, and so forth. And it's these present benefits that will be our focus for today. They're found in verses 10 and 11. There's three to be exact. And so let's, let's discover these three essential benefits of gaining Christ, that you too may live for Christ. Three essential benefits of gaining Christ, that you too may live for Christ. The first one is relationship. Relationship. And look at verse 10. Notice how Paul continues in verse 10. He's continuing the thought. But he says, that I may know him. Now, in reality, all of verses 8 through 11, it's just one long, like super long sentence in the Greek. So it can be a little bit challenging. But here in verse 10, what you have to realize is he's picking up, uh, uh, picking up on verse 9. His thought from verse 9. He wants to gain Christ. He wants to be found in Christ. Why? Well, one, that he might receive his righteousness. That's verse 9. But two, he says that I might know him. It's another reason he wants to be found in Christ, that I might know him. They might think, wait, I thought Paul already knows Jesus. I thought that's the whole point, like he came to know Jesus. Well, yeah, that's true. He came to a, a saving knowledge of Jesus. But realize, knowing Jesus, it doesn't stop at salvation. It, it merely starts. And it's meant to increase throughout life. And that, it, that in it itself is one of the chief blessings of being found in Christ. You gain him. You gain a living, active, ongoing relationship with the Lord and Savior. That's the benefit. You gain a relationship with the Lord and Savior. That's meant to go on and incur, increase and flourish and grow. I trust you know that in verse 10 where he says, to know, it's not talking about mere head knowledge here. This is talking about relational knowledge. Think about all your Facebook friends or, for the younger crowd, your Instagram followers. And just ask, do those people really know you? They're your friends, right? Well, you might say they know about you. Like, they can look up your favorite food and movie and restaurant and all that stuff. But I bet you'd say the vast majority of them, they don't really know you. But your spouse, your parents, your kids... They know you. They know who you really are. This is relational knowledge. It's only gained by living life with someone. You just have to spend time and live life with someone where they reveal to you their deepest thoughts, their essential character, and it results in a closeness with someone that no one else has. These, these Facebook friends, that they don't come close. Now, there are many people in the world, they know about Jesus. They know about him. They know some facts, but they don't know him. They have no relationship with him. They don't abide with him. They don't walk with him or talk with him or hear from him in, in the word or anything. And so they have no real meaningful knowledge of his, his love, his mercy, his power, his truth, his wisdom. And certainly they're not trusting in him in this relationship. But, you know, that's what eternal life is. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Knowing Jesus, it's like marriage. You're up there at the altar, you, you exchange vows, you say, I do. And now you're married. And in that moment, and thereafter, you come to know your spouse in a special way. With marriage comes these very intimate, personal, an intimate personal knowledge of the other person that no one else has just because of the closeness of the relationship. But at the same time, that, that knowledge, that relationship only grows with, with each passing year and that there's a deepening in the relationship. We took a cruise a while back and, you know, you have days at sea and so they do a lot of, you know, games on the ship. Without fail, they always seem to hold one of these newlywed games up on some stage. They bring couples up and they typically ask super embarrassing questions. And the more you know your spouse, the more embarrassing stuff you can say about them. Like, I could tell you really embarrassing things about Angel right now, but I won't because she could tell you really embarrassing things about me. So it's, it's like a social contract we have. But anyway, they always bring up some brand new couples and also like a seasoned couple who's been married for decades. And there's no competition. The, the, the seasoned couple, they've lived so much life together, they just know each other front and back. They don't just know about each other, they, they know each other. And that's what we're talking about here. You come to Christ, you confess him as your Lord and Savior. It's like, it's like you're saying, I do, to following Jesus. Like, I, I do, I will follow you. And he becomes your head, your husband, if you will, where you commit to to life with him, to following him, to living with him, to living for him, rich or poor, sickness or in health, you're signed up. You're, you're, you will follow him as your head, your Lord. And so at that, in that moment, you gain a relationship with the Savior. You come to know him. That knowledge is meant to grow and expand and flourish to your benefit, bringing you into a deeper relationship with him and all the joy that goes into such a relationship. And don't forget, knowing Jesus himself is the prize. Thinking back to uh, the illustration of, you know, with Kate Middleton, I would hope that she married the prince, not just because she wanted all the stuff, like I want to live in a palace, I want the butlers, I want the bodyguards. Hopefully that wasn't her primary motivation, that she married him because of him. Like I, I want him, I want to gain this relationship. Hopefully that was the driving factor. And so it goes for us. The blessing comes in Christ himself. He is the treasure. And so it's about knowing him, having this living, active relationship with the Lord. And that that in itself is the greatest blessing. So the question is, are you partaking in this blessing? Because that's meant to be a, a present benefit. Yes, in the kingdom, we'll know him much more with faces unveiled. But we can know him now, and we are meant to know him now to our benefit. So how do you know someone like your spouse? Well, you talk to them, you spend time with them, you listen to them, you serve them, you trust them, so forth. And likewise, how do we know Jesus when we keep saying this? How do you actually do that? How do you deepen your relationship with him? And you know, this, this is not some mystical knowledge where you're waiting for some feeling. Rather, we know him by spending time with him, walking with him, obeying him, talking to him in prayer, hearing from him through his word. And speaking of the word, God gave that as your chief means of knowing Jesus. After all, Jesus, he's the incarnate word. 
and this is his living word. The Bible is referred to as the mind of Christ. All scripture points to Christ. So it seems like a no-brainer. If you want to know Christ, you should know the word and, and take in the word, for he is the word. And as you deepen your walk with him, so you will find more comfort in your relationship and confidence and satisfaction and joy and all the blessings that come with a living relationship. But if you neglect this relationship, you will suffer. Life will suffer. The relationship will suffer. When you say this is true, that when your major relationships in life suffer, it seems like all life suffers. When your major relationships aren't going well, it just seems like all life is a little bit harder. Well, how do your major relationships suffer? Typically by neglect. Maybe you're too busy with work or school or hobbies or just something else to spend quality and quantity time with your spouse, your kids. And so over time, if you neglect the relationship, a rift forms, distance forms, conflict arises that wasn't there before. Your relationship suffers and all other aspects of life seem to grow a little bit dimmer. Maybe you feel that way spiritually. Maybe you feel like your faith has, has stalled out a little bit. You're, you're not thriving. You're not on fire like you once were. You feel distant from the Lord. But if that's you, I would safely bet that you are not actively engaged in the word, in prayer, in abiding with Jesus in a meaningful way. I would bet you have been neglecting your relationship with the Lord. I would bet that like Martha, you've been distracted by many other things. But like Jesus said, only one thing is necessary, and that is him sitting at his feet, hearing from him, fellowshipping with him, abiding with him, learning from him. You do that, you will find delight for your soul in the blessing of relationship, relationship with the Savior. This is the first and the chief benefit to coming to Christ. So here's number one, relationship. Number two, Power. Power, a second benefit for right now. Paul looks forward to gaining Christ that he might know him. Also, he says that he might know his power. Verse 10. He wants to be found in Christ that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul also wants to experience Christ's power in in this life. And that power comes as one of the benefits of being in Christ. What is this power, though, and and what's it for? Well, it's not just power, he says. It's resurrection power. This is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. If the love of God was on full display on the cross, the power of God was on full display in the empty tomb. This is God's ultimate power, life-giving power. Walking on water, healing the blind, stilling the storm, Yeah, all supreme, but this is God's ultimate power, raising the dead. It's the chief expression of his power. But, you know, is this, but you're saying that's like ours now? Like we have that power? Is that true? Well, listen to this, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. Very similar. Ephesians 1, verse 19. Paul is praying for that church, and he prays that they would know, verse 19, what is the surpassing greatness of his power, toward us who believe. He says, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, 
which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So look, we're, we're not just talking about resurrection power, but also ascension power. But notice in that passage, Paul, he doesn't pray that they would gain this power. He simply prays that they would come to an increasing awareness of the power that God's already given to them. He's already given you this power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. That power is ours. It's been given to us. How? Where? Well, simply in the Holy Spirit through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Listen now to Romans 8, verses 10 through 11. He says, if Christ is in you, there's that same concept, right? Union with Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. And he says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Now we're talking about the spirit being in us, the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. If that spirit, now we're talking the Holy Spirit, if that spirit's in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit is now that the power source for our new lives. Christ himself lived anointed with the spirit and power, right? He did all things in life by the power of the spirit. And specifically, it was God the Spirit sent by God the Father who raised the incarnate God the Son from the dead. That's power. And Jesus himself, he promised that same power to his disciples before he left. He told them in Acts chapter 1-8, wait in Jerusalem and they will receive what? Power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So this power, yeah, it's ours now. If you're in Christ, you've been given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that comes with God's power, resurrection power, the same level of power that raised Jesus from the dead, given to us, bringing us to new life and enabling us to live out this new life. You might ask, well, okay, what what really is this power, power for? Why did God give us the Spirit and the Spirit's power? The answer is not parlor tricks. The answer is not that we could amuse others or entertain others or or whatever. The purpose is pretty simple. It's holiness. He is called the Holy Spirit after all, right? That's for a reason. It's the spirit of holiness. And God gave it him and his power to us primarily for that reason, that we would walk in his holiness. The next verse in Romans 8, verse 12 says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We live in a fallen world with a fallen flesh that contains sinful thoughts and desires. It's in us. It's just pumping out sinful thoughts and desires. And even after salvation, we're forgiven, we're saved, but we still have the flesh with its sinful thoughts and desires. And it's a force within us that wants to sin. But now God has given us a new force within us, the spirit in competition. And the spirit is greater. It is more powerful than the flesh. And it's producing new thoughts and desires within us, thoughts for good. And if you would just walk by the spirit, submit to the spirit, 
live in his power, he will lead you in righteousness. He will give you victory over your flesh and enable you to live rightly before God. That's his primary function within us. And just think about what an amazing benefit that is. Maybe you find that you're, you're really struggling with sin, a certain sin perhaps. You're a believer, but there, there's this one sin that is constantly taking you down. You, you fall into it, you repent. You fall into it, you repent over and over again. You feel powerless against it, but at least know you're not. You're not powerless. God has given you resurrection power to, do, to wage war with the flesh and its thoughts and desires. He's given you what you need. God's power for new life. And even though we're not in heaven yet, God's given us access to that power to live out our new lives. And this is what we must do. Live pursuing Christ-likeness by his power. Paul says over in Colossians 1.29, in regards to pursuing Christ-likeness, he says, for this purpose I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. It sounds a lot like what we learned back in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, where, look, God, God's already at work in us. He's supplying us all the power we need, yet we still must work out our salvation in fear and trembling. We are called to live out God's power in obedience. There's a choice you must make, though, a choice to entertain the desires of the flesh or to deny them and thereby live in the desires of the Spirit. To make this choice and walk by the Spirit, fully confident that God, he's given you all the power you need to live for him. So so do so in the Spirit. I have to say, some people, they want to know Jesus, but they don't want to know his holiness. They want to share in his holiness. You know, it doesn't work that way. You can't know Jesus like we're talking about without knowing his holiness. After all, Jesus died to kill sin. So you think you can really walk with him while living in sin? Instead, just live in the benefit of this power that he's given to you, that you might share in his holiness and know him even more. You want a closer walk with him? Well, try holiness by the Spirit's power. Thirdly here, the final benefit of being in Christ is fellowship. Fellowship. Back again at verse 10. Paul himself wants to be found in Christ. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Some people want to know Jesus without knowing his holiness. You can't. Others want to know Jesus without knowing his suffering. You can't. What does this really mean, though, and and why does Paul want to inherit the fellowship of his sufferings? That sounds a little odd. What does this mean? Well, I've been picking on Romans 8. Why don't I continue? Just just listen to a very similar thought right after he says this, Romans 8, verses 16 and 17. He says, Thereafter, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that also we may be glorified with him. It's another verse that's relevant. It's talking about our inheritance 
Same thing we've been mentioning, but instead of a marriage metaphor, we have an adoption metaphor, where in Christ, we've been adopted into his royal family and all the benefits therein. The Spirit testifies, the Spirit in us testifies that we really are God's children, joint heirs with Christ. We will inherit all of these blessings in Christ. And by virtue of this adoption, we even inherit eternal life and glory. This is the guarantee of our glory. But strangely, Paul also says, all this is true if we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And so it does leave us with the same question, what, what does this mean? What is this connection between suffering and glory? And back in Philippians, why does Paul look forward to the benefit of fellowshipping in Christ's suffering? Well, the wrong view, the wrong answer is the picture of this kind of meritorious suffering. Like, you know, if, if you just suffer enough, God will favor you. Like you gain some merit. The more you suffer, the more God will, you know, cut you some slack. As if suffering earns merit before God. And so you can picture the, the misinformed monk who's sitting there in his monastery just kind of whipping his back as if that mortifies the flesh and gains some favor before God. But that is not true. Instead, the picture here, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Our suffering is merely a, by, a byproduct of following Jesus in a dark world. But as we endure, like there's it, unavoidable living in a dark world. But as we endure, as we enter into the fellowship of his sufferings, so we, we gain one of the surest proofs of our salvation, of our faith, and therefore of our glory, of that ultimate future glory. And so really we gain the gift of assurance and hope in the present through the fellowship of his sufferings. That's what he's getting at. This word for fellowship is the familiar word koinonia, which means partnership. Here it means close participation. Knowing Jesus means participating in his life. And look, we can't suffer to atone for sins, obviously. But if you're going to participate in the life of Christ, well, then you will suffer like him simply for the sake of righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you're going to be persecuted. And realize, as you gain Jesus, you gain his benefits, you also gain his enemies. We talked about, you know, entering the royal family. Okay, you've been adopted into the royal family. Well, you know, there are some people out there who, for various reasons, they, they hate the royal family, maybe from past grievances, or, or maybe they just hate the entire United Kingdom. So you've now entered the royal family. Yeah, you gain a lot of friends and benefits, but you now gain a lot of enemies, people who now just hate you simply for who you are in that status. And so it goes for us in Christ. The world hates Jesus. Yeah, I know, people like to talk the talk of love and peace and tolerance and kindness and all that. But not God's definition of love and kindness and tolerance. I mean, just think, how did they treat Jesus in person? He was the embodiment of God's definition of love and truth. how they treat him? Okay, they, they killed him. So how do you think they're going to treat you? At salvation, the Lord freed us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. But for now, though, 
we're still living on earth. We're still living here in a very dark world. And so how do you think they're going to treat you? But as you suffer and as you endure, as you participate in Christ's own sufferings for the sake of righteousness, you gain something valuable. You gain assurance that you will someday reign with him. And so this suffering, it actually becomes a blessing. Not that it's good in itself, but it it assures us of our salvation and our eternal inheritance. Peter said the same thing. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 12-13. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the suffering of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Peter experienced firsthand these sufferings that come just with Christ. You're going to follow Christ in the light. You're going to suffer. But even still, he calls us to rejoice, like like Philippians says, rejoice in the Lord, realizing that in these sufferings, it's like we're getting a down payment of our future glory. We're, we're getting that the strongest assurance we're on the narrow way, because as you endure, that that's as close to proof positive as you get of a sure faith. Paul knew this too. We've been talking about knowing Christ. But realize, it's those Christians who suffer the most, they come to know Christ the most. That This fellowship, they're drawn into the fellowship of his sufferings. And you think about a guy like Paul. I can't think of anyone who suffered for Christ as much as Paul. And it just reads in scripture you read his passages his, his works his writings and it just oozes you can tell this is a guy who knew jesus at a higher level where he can say philippians 121 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain how can that be true well he knows christ and when he dies he gets more of christ this is what we're talking about here later in life Right before his own death, Paul would say this, 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. But if we deny him, he also will deny us. This little phrase was a common confession of the early church. If we died with him, we will also live with him. That, that really captures what Paul is trying to say here in our text in Philippians 3. He wants to know the fellowship of his sufferings, verse 10, being conformed to his death, verse 11, in order that, he says, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Remember, we're talking overall what it means to be found in Christ. And so as we're united to Christ by faith, as, as he died to sin, well, so we die to sin. As he lives to righteousness, so we live to righteousness. And as you do that, you gain the hope of glory. Romans 6, 5 says, If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And and that's it right there. We have been united with Christ in the likeness of his death. We have died to sin. 
And if that's true for you, if you're living dead to sin, if by the Spirit you are crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, if that's true for you, then you will be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. You are gaining proof of your future inheritance that you will receive truly eternal life. So now you must follow Jesus, dying to sin, living to righteousness, crucifying the flesh with its passions and desires, all the while enduring suffering for his name's sake. You do this, you gain assurance, like Paul, that you will be raised with him and that you will reign with him. This is Paul's hope. It's the hope of resurrection, which is our ultimate hope, victory over over death itself, sin and death defeated. That's our ultimate hope, and it comes again in Christ. So talk about a benefit. That's not just some fringe benefit. We gain victory over sin and death itself. But the cross comes before the crown. So if you're going to follow Jesus into that glory, you pick up your cross, suffer with him for the sake of righteousness, and endure. Then you will enter. So what is the takeaway here for this suffering? Well, like Paul, you just embrace it. Don't fear this persecution and suffering, but accept these sufferings and actually let them multiply your hope and your joy, not in the world, but in the Lord, because he's really our only hope. And this hope is actually a powerful gift in the present. Without hope, you're done. But with this hope, you gain all you need to endure, to press on, to finish the race in which you inherit Christ himself. Just to finish, look down at Philippians 3, verses 20 through 21. Paul's own hope near the end of the chapter, which we'll see. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is our hope. It's the hope of glory. The Philippians were being made to suffer for their faith. So too might you. They were called to rejoice in the Lord always. So too must you. But as you suffer, as you endure, you gain the gift of assurance and hope, hope of future glory. And that is enough to encourage you to press on. Relationship, power, fellowship, these are ours now in Christ, meant to give us all that we need to run the race and to attain glory with Christ. And so put these together, we have a message of great encouragement If you're united to Christ by faith, you have much now to help you now. You have that relationship. You've gained Christ himself. He is the prize. And you get to know him and his his word. The blessings of relationship with the Lord and the Savior of all the earth. You also gain power. He's given us his Holy Spirit to provide us all the power we need to follow him, to live for him, to boldly witness. So live in that power. And we even gain fellowship. Yeah, we know following Christ is not always easy. You live in a world of darkness. You'll be made to suffer. But as you endure, this suffering draws you into a deeper fellowship with him 
and it, it returns to you the gift of assurance and, and a stronger hope, not in the world, but in the Lord. So press on. And in all, we find that it's worth it. What's worth it? Well, what we learned beforehand, where Paul in verse 8, he expresses how he, he lost it all. He gave up everything he was holding on to to gain one thing, and that was Christ. But you know what? That's enough. It's worth it. Because if you gain Christ, you gain all of this. And so like Paul, we say in verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let us continue to know him. And let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, we want to know you. That is the, the cry of our heart, the desire of our heart. Lord God, we know that you made all of us with the capacity to know you and even a desire to know you, to find our life's meaning and purpose in you, our satisfaction in you. Yet we have all fallen and gone astray. We look for joy and hope and peace and, and many other things in the creation. Yet, Lord, you're, you're our only hope. There is no meaning and purpose in life apart from you. In you, our joy is found. And I pray that that is true and evident for us. You have redeemed us in Christ. Through him, you've, you've drawn us out of the mud pit, cleaned us off, given us new clothes. We are, we are blessed. We, we will inherit life because of Christ. But, Lord, you've done even more, giving us the blessings, the present benefits of relationship, power, fellowship with Christ, all that we need to live for him, to enjoy him, to press on, to endure until the end. And so I pray we do that. Encourage us this morning with these benefits. May we reflect on all that we really have gained in Christ. And being so empowered, may we now live for you. May we share Christ's own holiness, walking with him, knowing him, that we would indeed live with him and for him forever. This is our hope. It's in you, Lord. We pray that you would bless us as we progress. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.